welcome to episode 367 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. If the sky comes falling down for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I have a cold, but the podcast must go on. So it sounds like to our listeners that somebody has parked like a bus in my sinus cavity, then that's partially correct. You doing the neti pot? I <laughs> so that just struck me as funny because one, I didn't expect that question right at the top. Like we're just coming hot out of the gate. Again, we're back to, to medical things. But you asked that with such seriousness. Like it was like both matter of fact and also like like you just pulled up a stool and you're like, you doing the neti pot? I like uh, very on the way home the other day from work, I was like, Man, my sinuses feel like I'm getting a sinus infection. And I was like, but I have the neti pot at home. And so I did the neti pot and it felt a lot better. It's funny you say that. I know we talked about that a little while ago. I did do it maybe like two days ago. And again, like I have that derivative version that's a little bit more ergonomic and friendly to use. It's more of like a sinus irrigation system of an epic proportion, but yes, but no, it's that time of the year where stuff is going around. So I just usually like to give that disclaimer so that people don't write us and say, what's wrong with Jesse's voice? Why (laughs) does he sound so weird? Or just in case my voice does some kind of strange Cracking that infers that I'm just now hitting puberty. Yeah. That's the reason why it's, it's the cold people. It's the vocal cords are worn out, but listen, the podcast must go on regular principal podcasting. Can't stop. Won't stop. And to that end, let's start with a little affirming and a little denying. What are you affirming with on this episode of the TR? So I have been watching Loki season two and I just got to say, it's really good. It's really, really good. I know your wife texted us this morning. She's a big Marvel uh, cinematic universe fan. And she texted us today to say that this, this newest episode is really, really good. So I won't, I hope this isn't spoilers, uh, spoilers for season one. That was like two years ago. It, Loki Although Loki is a character from Thor, really he doesn't actually play that role very much in this show. And he, uh, it's a time travel show. It's like a time timeline time travel. So they're doing some more interesting stuff with timelines and time looping in this second season that I think is really, really cool. So it's on Disney Plus. There's a there's a little bit of strong language in a couple of episodes, and and it can be a little bit violent, but it, overall, it's not too bad. It would be fine. It's fine for adults, obviously, and it'd be fine for probably for older teens too. I just really, really enjoy it. So I'm affirming Loki, the television series, but specifically season two has been excellent. And as a Marvel Cinematic Universe, I don't know connoisseur or I don't know expert, whatever you want to call me a lot of their offerings lately have been pretty disappointing. So for them to come back strong with uh, Loki season two, uh, and it looks like Loki season two is going to be setting up the rest of the MCU for the next big like waves in the movies is, is what I'm hearing. So it's excellent. It's very good. Check it out. And Tom Hiddleston, I mean, he's just like an excellent, amazing actor. Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson on the screen together. I think all we need to do is find a way to get Vince Vaughn in the mix and and we're all set to go for, for like the best television show ever. The experienced listener will know that I don't know, understand anything about the Marvel stuff. However, 
this is one of the things that I like to do with my wife because, as you said, she is such a great fan. We just finished watching together the most recent episode. It is getting to the point where I understand enough to be annoying while we watch it, and that's fun in its own right. My experience is with this particular whole thing is that, yes, it's time travel, but would you agree that it's kind of like unlike the cliche time travel? It's unlike probably any other time travel you're familiar with. So whatever you think is happening, and if you're like, oh, I'm tired of the same old time travel trope stuff like yeah. Back to the Future, it's not that. It's it's hard to explain it without giving away spoilers. This season is actually becoming more like a traditional time travel show. So some of the like dynamics that you see in really like classic time travel television is good but i i think i don't want to go too far into it i think that actually has to do with the way that the the plot that's going forward so like the the original plot is like there's all these different parallel timelines and this organization that loki joins their responsibility is to like get rid of all these alternate timelines but like now that that's in the second season, that's not really it. Now it's becoming more of a traditional time story where there's like time looping and yeah, it, it's hard to explain unless you've seen it. So there's only six episodes in each season. So it, you could go back and watch Loki season one and you don't really need to know anything out. You don't really need to know anything else about the MCU to jump into Loki season two and, and be fine. Um, you might need to know like the general characters and kind of like the overall time stream, but they also do a really good job in that first season of doing like a recap of how Lo this version of Loki got to be where he is and how he got there. So you really could jump in on the first episode of season one and not have any MCU background and you would be totally fine. But I think it's just really, really innovative what they're doing. The cinematography is great. There's lots of really long sustained shots. Um, one thing that Marvel is very, uh, very criticized for is they do tons of cut shots and that's fine, I guess, but this is really long cinematography where they have long sustained shots and that's, I'm not a filmmaker, but that's hard to do and it's hard to do well. It's part of why they do so many cut scenes and stuff. So I'm just really impressed by it. And the acting is good. The tone is good. Um, the characters are well-developed. It's just really, really, it's really nice to see a good Marvel offering. We haven't had one of those for quite a while. I think even some of the most recent movies haven't been that great. Or it's more fun to not get any background. It's true. And just watch it. <laughs> watch it with somebody who knows. That's kind of what we say about this podcast generally is find a friend, have a conversation in the same way. If you've even never watched this stuff before, it's a, I guess I suppose worth at least seeing what it's all about. And speaking of time travel, I realize even on this episode, we've done things a little bit out of order. I usually, I say something at the top about what we're talking about and let me just insert that to give everybody a little taste. We are talking still about eschatology and the judgment of apostate angels and the second death. So there you go. Something yeah. heavy and serious coming your way. But I figured I just, since we're time traveling all over the place, it's true. I'll just bring that right into this episode as well. Yeah. What are you affirming tonight? So mine is maybe like the exact opposite of this, at least with respect to the fact that Marvel is at least a fictional place. And I'm trying to ground us in a little bit of reality with this particular affirmation by way of like a, a long introduction that is unnecessary, but this is the podcast you've listened, decided to listen to. So you're going to get it. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about how useful the creeds, the confessions are. They're like a theological North Star. They ground us, they frame us, they anchor us into reality. I was thinking about that recently 
in my own life. And so I'm affirming with getting something in your life that helps you to organize all of your finances. And I got two recommendations for people. One that's totally quote unquote free, one that's you that has a fee associated with it, but it's worth the money. Both of these are just online offerings that allow you to aggregate all of your finances. Partly this came up for me because Mint, if many use people might use Mint online, that's going away at least in its current form. It's being absorbed by Credit Karma. And so I was wondering what else is out there. And the, one of the great things that's out there is first, the free one is called Empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R. And this is an aggregator for all of your financial well-being. So you can actually import all of your account information. It helps you to understand and track and report on how you are spending your money and where all that money is in fact going, which of course is like the first and the greatest way to understand how to create a budget. I say that it's free and this is where the caution comes in. Nothing really is ever free. And we've talked long before about how if something is free and you can't find the product, then you're the actual product. And so the reason why this is free is it is a capital planning tool. It's an offering from a financial institution and they're just allowing you to use their technology to aggregate anything. So you're likely to get their ads to get some of their profiling that happens as a result of them accumulating that information. But nonetheless, it's a really great tool for free for you to accumulate all the information. The second one, which will cost you something, but it's worth it, is an initial called, called YNAB, which stands for You Need a Budget. This I would highly recommend. It's going to run you about $100 a year. And you might ask, why would I spend a bunch of money to figure out how much money I'm spending? Because this is probably like the best, most sophisticated, and yet most approachable budget planning software I've honestly ever seen. And not only does it allow you to, again, accumulate all your accounts, all your transactions in one place, so you can see how much am I spending at Starbucks or at the grocery store or how much is my rent, but it allows you to do some really epic and easy planning to actually allow you to see how much your current income covers. And if you have debt and you want to set that debt on a timeline to expire, it'll help you understand how much you can put forward toward that safely. So either way, I've realized that these kind of tools are basically like a creed or a confession for your finances. If you don't have some kind of confession or creed for your financial well-being, then it's like the rules that you follow. And probably a lot of Christians, they have at least one rule, which is, I need to tithe. But if you have nothing beyond that, then that's a problem. And so the best thing you can do is jump into one of these tools. So Empower is the free one. YNAB, you need a budget, is the second one. I recommend that if you can put forward the, the money. It, it's a tool that you're going to certainly value. And it's going to be one that's make you feel more confident about your planning. It's worthwhile. So there we go. There's your financial plug. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know a lot about YNAB and I don't know anything about the other one. But what I do know about YNAB is, is if you you know, YNAB is based on these like four rules that they have about how you organize and spend your money. And if you follow those rules, then the chances that you won't, uh, you won't recuperate the, the hundred dollars that you spend in utilizing the service is pretty much, uh, unheard of. So yeah, I think this is great. I think I love how you connect it to like having a confession because so many different things in our lives, we, we don't have good boundaries and good, um, like good structure to how we think about things. That's something I'm really learning with like this stoicism stuff I've been on and this journaling kick is like, if you don't have a good framework for how you think through your different, uh, categories and you think through the stuff you're doing, if you don't have some sort of framework for what you're doing, you kind of just go all over the place. So I think that's great. I think it's really, really a good idea to have something, even if it's like 
you know, like a, a Excel spreadsheet where you track your finances, like that's, that's better than nothing. If you're just kind of willy nilly right. spending and you don't have a structure at all. Um, and that doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to be super rigid. I mean, YNAB kind of, kind of functions on almost like a zero sum budget where like every dollar is associated with something. Uh, and some people really need that. But even if it's just a matter, like there's been times in our, our, my marriage where we've done cash budgets where we have envelopes, like that's kind of the, uh, like the, um, financial peace university, Dave Ramsey style is like you have envelopes and at every pay period or whatever cycle you go on, you just take cash out you put cash in these different envelopes and you don't spend anything that you're not purchasing in cash. That's a good way to do it. But yeah, you would, you would quickly recuperate a hundred dollars in a year if you really followed a good strict budget or whatever the budget is, like whatever budgeting methodology you're going to use. If you don't have a budget or don't have a structure for how you manage your money, uh, which is really all that a budget is, you're going to be spending, you're going to lose a hundred dollars almost in like, um, it's almost like evaporation. Like, you know, like there's some things in, uh, in like scientific endeavors where like you have to prohibit or you have to have something in place to keep material from kind of like evaporating out into the, the world. Like that's the same thing a budget's doing for you. It's like preventing your money from kind of like evaporating out in ways you don't understand. And you'll, I, I would be really surprised if anybody didn't save at least a hundred dollars by using a program like this in a year. Yeah, it's worth it. Of course, people know that finance is a passion of mine, but also the great advantage of these tools is not just in the recording, which of course, like you say, you can do that in lots of ways. It's in the guidance and the planning that it helps you. If you say, I want to pay off this credit card or I want to pay off this mortgage and to help you understand how, what you can reasonably kind of orchestrate your life financially to make that happen. That's the real benefit and the real power of these things aside. A nice happy benefit is if you're the kind of person that's like, well, I don't really know how much I spend on these things. And, and I'm not saying that people are spending recklessly. Yeah. It's just that unless you actually know and accumulate up all the dollars and who wants to do that by hand, this is just like a real level. It happens in the background. It's, on iOS, Android, mobile, on Mac and PC. All these things make it just so accessible. And again, this I think this used to be the kind of thing, honestly, you'd have to like sit down with a financial planner and pay somebody way more than $100 to help come with a plan. But then as soon as you did that plan, it was outmooted because it needs to be updated with what you're spending on. And, and also, if you're trying to figure out like, well, how much is inflation really cutting into the things that I buy? And are there places where I can cut back? And if I did cut back, hypothetically, how would that change my ability to meet these different goals? So you could do your own kind of benefit analysis there. Yeah. It's super helpful. But the joy of these things for me is that it takes these concepts, which could be high and lofty, like high and lifted up, so to speak, and it just brings them down. It makes them, puts them in a place where they're on the lower shelves, so within arm's reach. And I love it when people feel like, wow, finance is a life skill, and I'm, I'm using these resources and storing them in different and better ways because I have different and better knowledge. So that's it. Sounds like we're making a commercial. Any one of those, I'd be happy for to sponsor the podcast, but they haven't yet. It's true. It's true. Yeah. All right. It's negative time. What are you denying? So this isn't so much a denial. I think I'm maybe this is like another new category. So we've had we affirm, we deny, we had we distinguish sometimes. This is almost like a theological PSA, is kind of how I'm thinking about this. So I was listening to a lecture by Derek Thomas this morning. Um, I've referenced he had this like multi-year series that he did at his church. They called School of Theology. And this was an episode where they were talking about open theism and they touched on the concept of middle knowledge. And where the theological PSA comes in here is there are a lot of people who explain middle knowledge um, in a way where it makes it sound like 
the reformed tradition affirms even the existence of middle knowledge and just not the way that Molinists, particularly like William Lane Craig or Arminians, just the way they use it is wrong. That's actually not even, even accurate. So just a real brief primer on it. There are, are historically, classically, really until Al- Alfred Molina in the, the Middle Ages, there was two kinds of knowledge that we affirm God has. He has natural knowledge, which as the word suggests, is the knowledge that God has of his himself. And so that includes the knowledge that of God's own nature, but also the knowledge of all that God could do, all of all of the possible ways that God could create that are consistent with his knowledge. So there's natural knowledge, and then there's free knowledge, which is the knowledge God has of what he will actually do. So natural knowledge includes all of the things that are possible for God to do, given his nature, all of the possible worlds he could create, the possible people he could create, all of the possible things he could decree that are consistent with his his nature. That's natural knowledge. And then free knowledge is what God actually will do. And the innovation of middle knowledge, and it really was an innovation by Molina in the Middle Ages, the innovation of Molina was postulating this, this third kind of knowledge, which wasn't just the knowledge of what could happen but won't, or what what could happen but is not decreed to happen. And that's where I think reform folks get it wrong. Because that's um that distinction of like what could happen but will not happen, that distinction is part of God's natural knowledge. And the 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 innovation here was breaking that out into a third category of knowledge. And the reason that this I'm calling this a, a theological PSA is the the reason behind why reformed folks tend to treat middle knowledge as though it's just kind of like assumed well of course god has this middle knowledge of course god knows the contingencies he knows that although in this circumstance i did x um you know the example that derek thomas gives is like his name is derek but it didn't have to be like it could have been patrick or it could have been some other name well, the reason that reform folk tend to affirm middle knowledge as a third category is because it sort of serves like an apologetic value, at least in their mind, to have like some agreement. The problem is that once you once you argue or you allow for this middle knowledge to exist separate from God's natural knowledge, you've actually already conceded the argument. Because what Molina argues and what William Lane Craig argues is that middle knowledge is the only thing that is contingent is actually the things that are cre- the the realities, the possible realities that are created by free agents making free choices. And this free agent making a free choice, that's not determined by God. So there's we, we won't get into it. We did I did an episode. We and the only reason I did is because Jesse wasn't there because I was on the I was at the um, Philadelphia conference when I did it. But there was an episode on middle knowledge that you should go back and listen to. But middle knowledge is um, the possible worlds that are caused by free decisions of free agents that are not determined by God. So if you accept that middle knowledge is this third category, then you've already conceded that free agents make free decisions that are not determined by God. So the historic reform theology, and you'll see this in people like Voss, where they just basically deny that the category exists, has affirmed that God has knowledge of himself, perfect knowledge of himself, perfect archetypal knowledge of himself. And that knowledge of himself includes 
all of what might be possible for him to do. He knows all of the possible worlds he may create because he knows himself truly. Then free knowledge is his knowledge of what he actually has decreed to happen. There is no third category. And when we affirm that third category as existing, even though we think we're utilizing it different, we actually have just already conceded the argument. So when you're in a conversation with a Molinist, you're going to have far better luck trying to undercut the idea of middle knowledge and push into the idea of like, well, who determines what it is that free agents would do? Um, like William Lane Craig is famous, famous for saying, and I think he probably regrets saying it, but he's famous for saying like, well, God has to work with the hand that he's dealt. Well, who dealt God the hand if not God? Well, the answer is creatures, which makes God subject to the creatures. So I don't know. I'll call that my theological PSA. Don't just don't do it. Like middle knowledge is whack. It's not a real category. The reform historically have never affirmed it. Really no one before Molina actually thought of it as a separate category and he broke it out to try to explain how creatures could have true, genuine libertarian free will. Well, Calvinists don't affirm that libertarian free will is even a coherent category generally. So if we go there, we've already lost the argument because we've already conceded the main point in an attempt to try to um, co-opt that point for ourselves. I think if you're regularly having conversations with Molinists, you live a very interesting life anyway. It's true. It's true. Molinists are a totally different breed. They're hard to talk to because sometimes it's it's hard to even get your head around what it is that they're trying to say. It's very philosophical. It's very challenging to understand the theology, which I don't hold anyone like I'm not going to come down on anybody for not fully understanding this stuff. And maybe I don't fully understand it. I'm sure there are, are nuances that I don't get, but I've had direct conversations with William Lake Craig way back in the day over this, asking clarifying questions about what he means by middle knowledge and what he understands. So I think I have a pretty good grip on it. But yeah, this idea that like middle knowledge is just the knowledge of contingencies somehow separate from God's knowledge of himself is that's not really, it just doesn't really work. And of course people will point to like the, the confession where it says God not only knows, um, he determines all things, including contingencies. Um, they'll point to that and say, see middle knowledge is in the confession, but that just really isn't, it's not really an accurate read of what the confession is trying to get at here. Yeah, that's fair. Again, Difficult to chat with, difficult to find. But if you find one, you've been prepared and warned. It's true. It's true. What about you? What are you denying today? <laughs> I'll keep mine really, really brief. Uh, this is just a denial of these common graces of God and not appreciate them as we ought to. I was reading a report this week from the CDC and found something that I shouldn't have been surprised by and something I really underappreciated and was really ungrateful for. And that is that fewer than 1 billion people in the world have a tap at home that issues potable water. In fact, according to the CDC, there's only 50 countries in the world. That's astounding to me. 50 countries that have clean tap water that is acceptable to drink. There's most of Europe, excluding most of like the Balkans with the, and the former Soviet states, with some exceptions being Croatia and Estonia, interestingly enough. In the Americas, there's just four countries. It's wild. Four countries that qualify for quality tap water. Canada, the US, Costa Rica, and Chile. Yeah. All of Asia has just seven countries with clean tap water. Israel, South Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, Singapore, South Korea, and Japan. Australia, New Zealand round out the rest of the group. That's just astounding to me. So 
again, this is one of those things where the conviction of what it took time to be alive kind of fell on me as I read this article. Such a blessing. If you're like me and you drink water from the tap or wash your dishes or shower comfortably or freeze ice cubes or make tea or coffee from it, it's just a blessing to have. So let's all do what we can to appreciate that gift. Uh, but also, and you don't need recommendations for me, there's so many great organizations out there that are continuing to bring like what is a basic necessity of all human life. And of course, the scriptures, I mean, there's a water hermeneutic all the way through. We could talk about that. But this glorious benefit of being able just to go to your tap and to turn on the water and to consume it without fear or worry is actually not a convenience that is common. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, it's kind of a somber reality. Like we don't think about the... Um blessings we have in just everyday, I don't even know what to call like everyday uh, access to basic life needs. Like there are definitely, don't, don't hear me wrong when I say this, there are definitely people in America who suffer from like food insecurity, but you don't, you don't generally see people like legitimately starving to death on the streets in the United States of America. It just doesn't, it's not that it never happens, but it's not common enough to even like really be a common occurrence. Where in like other countries, people starving to death or dying of thirst or getting sick from drinking the water and dying because of that is is an everyday occurrence where it's not really common enough in America. Like I don't think any of us know someone who is legitimately starving to death or doesn't have access to clean water in, in any of our lives. I just wouldn't, I would be really surprised if any of our listeners know someone like that or are someone, I suppose we do have some listeners in countries that don't, that aren't on that list you just mentioned, but it's just not common. And I think it is something we should really think about and not take for granted because it is, it is amazing how easy we have access to basic life necessities in, in the Western world. It just is, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. So it's just another, I think, reminder of how good God is to us and how we'll try to make that kind of common good, which we consider to be a public good available to as many as we can. There's a lot of nobility in trying to pursue that end, but at the same time, there's, it starts with us at home being grateful and well, those things just pops up to your life and you think, man, it's so good to have water. Yeah. So um, speaking of good things, and we're getting to the end of all things, so to speak, and we're talking more about eschatology and really where we've landed on this episode was this kind of dual discussion, which is really one discussion of the judgment of the apostate angels and the second death. But uh, I'll let you start on this one because I think there's a bunch of different places that we can go and should go. But let's start at the beginning. So why don't you kick us off? Yeah. So the reason that we link these two concepts together is because the Bible connects the judgment of humans that are opposed to God, right? All of those who are apart from Christ. It judges, um, it, it, it links the judgment of like reprobate humans with the judgment of reprobate angels. And so just reading from our confession here, chapter 33, this is the Westminster, chapter 33, uh, section one, God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ. And there are a number of, of passages that link 
the judgment of angels with the judgment of those humans who are apart from Christ. So um, the most pertinent one is in Revelation, which we've spent a lot of time. I mean, we've spent a fair amount of time in Revelation 20 here in this um, this series here. But just reading again, um, starting in verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then just reading real briefly from uh, Matthew 25, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the scripture and Christ specifically in, in um, the Matthew passage links the the final punishment and destination, right? The final location of the reprobate angels and the final location of the reprobate humans, they're in the same place. I mean, place might not be entirely the right word, although there is a, there's a location, but the judgment that is reserved for those who are opposed to God, whether angelic or human is the same judgment. And there's a lot of interesting things that I think come up when you look at this, like, the thing that I was sort of trying to puzzle through this week is we affirm that the torment and the destruction and the the punishment of reprobate humans is bodily, like it's a bodily torment. It's a bod- it's a conscious bodily punishment. We we landed on that pretty hard in the the resurrection episode. That there's a reason why God resurrects everybody is that the the sin that people commit is sin within the body, and so the punishment of that sin also has to take place in the body. But the location of that that punishment is a place that was prepared for angels who don't have bodies. So there's some really interesting theological, um, theological, I don't know, musings that could happen. But I think we don't often reflect enough on the fact that God has established a sort of a uniform punishment for all those who are... Um, all those who are opposed to him. And that punishment, although the scripture uses this language of like a lake of fire, and um, I think this is one of the implications of the fact that this place of punishment was prepared for the angels who do not have bodies, is that although we do suffer, those who are apart from Christ do suffer in the body for eternity, the nature of the punishment is primarily spiritual. And I think that's kind of what we need to talk about tonight is, is, what is the nature of the spiritual punishment of those who are apart from Christ? And it can't be, you know, we, we things like Dante and the middle age paintings, all of those, they've left us with this picture of like people strapped to torture racks and like devils poking them in the feet with hot irons. That's not at all what the Bible is saying. So we have to try to talk about what is the Bible saying is the actual state of those who are apart from Christ. What is the actual punishment that they are suffering here that the Bible refers to in these various terms, like a fire, you know, the 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 worm will not perish and the 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 fire will not be quenched. What is actually going on here? What is this the nature of this spiritual punishment that people are undergoing? Although undergoing it in the body, it is still primarily a spiritual punishment. 
Yeah, and in my view, that happens because we are fully reconstituted at that point. That this is, in, in my perspective, like a perfect punishment, in that it comes following the resurrection, so that final judgment. And in that way, it is prolific in both the fact that it impacts both the body and the spirit, which are now reunited in a way that it's perfect. I think there's a way in which we can say the Bible leads us in this direction of a perfect reunification, while at the same time saying there is a difference for those whom Christ has saved and those who have voliciously, vociferously denied him, and so therefore are relegated to eternal punishment. So you're right, because sometimes we can cheapen that, the finality of that second death right. by saying like, it's it's like the person that almost mocks hell by saying like, oh, I'll see you in hell or like, yeah, I'm going to get punished there or yeah, yeah it's going to be hot. That's not the problem. Right. I mean, that's not the kind of pain and torment that we're talking about. It is part and parcel of it, but it's not the whole. The whole is everything of what it means to be a man in the proper sense in the beginning, Genesis 1 style is now you're being played. Well, let's say it this way. I think you're being, there's like that reconstitution that sets you into the right frame of what it be to be a man, except that you're placed in a location, so to speak, quote unquote, where you were never meant to be as that perfect man. Yeah. And so therefore that is part of the torment is that you're now in some ways made perfect and realigned, but in a place of great dislocation and separation from Christ and so that is punishing. It's going to be tearing asunder or trying to tear asunder that reinstated perfection of the mind, body, and the spirit that's been brought together in the second resurrection. So I think that if I'm, I'm just trying to do this real quick in Logos, I think like we find in Revelation, the first reference to the second death comes, I think, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. And interestingly, the way this is set forward first is as a great benefit to those who are saved in Christ. So that the way in which this is couched, at least when we get to John's revelation, is first from a perspective of, of how those who know and love Jesus will not be hurt by the second death. That's, that's the first uh, reference as far as I can see here. And that is a profound framing for us as we go into this. The second death, and then as you quote, I think is mentioned like three other times in Revelation, each which is reinforcing the fact that this is Jesus and John's way of referring to some kind of eternal punishment. And we can talk about the lake of fire and all the illusions there too, and whether or not that is both physical as much as like a, a metaphor to help us understand in language that would have been clearly resonant what it means to undergo some kind of punishment. Of course, there's a scriptural mandate for that and all kinds of Old Testament themes, which probably we, we don't have the time to go into. But Revelation 20, like you said, is blessed and holy is one who shares in the first resurrection. Okay, so good so far. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So here we have this sense in which it's everything you just said, like there's so much gospel in this, like that the second death comes for those for whom it, the, the, it hasn't been defeated. And Christ has, on his own volition, taken, this is John Owen, like, all I can think of is cut, cut to John Owen, who's like, I already wrote this, the death of death and death of Christ. <laughs> How profound this is that he has drunk in this curse, this judgment to the dregs all the way down. And for those that are saved in him, we see this as like great victory and we have no great amount or no fear at all for this. But for those who are not in that book of life, then what we have here is like some tremendous finality and some tremendous type of punishment that I think, like you said, you're right to point out that we have to understand the spiritual consequences and impact of this. That's the, really the entry point, I think, into this punishment. It's not merely 
this kind of just physical death. The last thing I'll say, and I think we've talked about this before, is to me, when I hear this, when I read about the second death, we understand it in that proper light. I'm always drawn back to the garden in Gethsemane yes. where Jesus is crying out to the Father. And, you know, some, I think, like there's a kind of, I'll say it this way, kind of childish and immature perspective on that prayer where we're sometimes prone in our community to think, yeah, of course, like Jesus in his perfect knowledge in God's foreordination, in his understanding of what he's about to undertake, is dreading death itself. But like how many martyrs have gone singing and gallivanting, so to speak, like being as they're tied to the stake to be burned. Jesus, I would say his great, that moment of great anxiety, so to speak, that moment of great stress and duress is not because of the physical death. It's because of this massive spiritual separation that he understands yeah. he's about to forego when, when God the Father forsakes him. So this is being God forsaken in hell. That, that's really what this is about. And that same kind of duress that we see Christ under is the same kind of duress that the human being will be under, uh, except like there, there's just no benevolence. There's no saving. There's no restoration. There's no salvation. There's no... There's no remedial and super atoning payment that can be made in hell to rectify or to remediate and to restore that which has been dislocated in that moment. That's what Christ does for us. And so the second death is like a jam we just cannot conceive of. Yeah. It's, a preser it's the preserver of which is like, I think just mind boggling. And, and that's, I think my, my, when I think about it, that's what scares the pants off of me the most. It's that it's almost, it is impossible to conceive. But what we know, what the truth is, is that it's impossible for us to conceive, yeah. but it's going to be horrific. Yeah. And I think, you know, because of the way Western um, art and Western literature and, and largely like the medieval church has handed us a conception of hell that is very much a caricature, like Dante, Dante-esque kinds of concepts of hell are... I think originally were intended to sort of like portray the terrors of hell in a, uh, artistic and an approachable fashion. But the real terror of hell is something that we don't even no one this side of eternity can even comprehend. And that the reason for that is, is that even those who are enemies of Christ in this world still, still, um, exist under God's common grace. And so in this life, those who are quote unquote apart from Christ are not really apart from Christ utterly. They still have Christ's gracious presence in that they are granted his common grace in this world. And in in the second death, and this this is actually just a connection that I made that I, I can't I, I can't say I've had made before, but I'm going to make it now just publicly. Hopefully it's not heresy. The first death in a sense is what we see in the end of Genesis 3, right? God promises the people, he promises Adam and Eve that if they if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. And so he he part of that death, right? There's a physical death, but there's a spiritual death that begins. He cast them out from his presence, right? So chapter three, verse 21, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
At the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Calvin talks about the tree of life as this sacrament of the of the Adamic covenant. And the tree of life is actually Christ. So, so the concept of eating from the tree of life is actually about union with Christ. So to be cast out from the tree of life is actually to be cast away from Christ. Now, the second death in Genesis or in Revelation 20 is really not about being put into this like like lava bath. Like I think we think of it like you're cast in this lava bath. Like it's like Anakin Skywalker burning on the shores of the lava river in, in episode three. Like that's not what we're talking about. Well we're always take the high ground. What was that? Always take the always take ground. the high ground. What we're actually talking about though is we're talking about utter separation from the gracious presence of God. That's yeah. what the punishment is. It's it's the final sealing and completion of what began in the garden. And the fact that God didn't do that instantly for all of Adam's posterity is is actually a supreme act of grace. And so reading just from chapter um, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, I'm going to start reading in, let's say, verse 8, uh, verse 7. It says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified with his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Right? So the second death is not so much about being like thrown into this lava pool. The second death is the culmination of the exile from Eden. Right, so Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. They're cast away from the presence of God in His garden temple, and they're they're not utterly cast away. And Adam and Eve are are in Christ proleptically, so they're not cast away in the same sense. But even the reprobate experience God's grace, His gracious kindness in this life, in a way that they will not experience in any sense in the second death. And that's what's so terrifying about it, is that it is this utter, complete, final separation. And that's why I wanted to start this by emphasizing the spiritual nature of this, right? The punishment that was prepared for the angels is the same utter separation from God's gracious presence, his kindness, his loving presence. They suffer that entirely spiritually because they are entirely spiritual beings. We would suffer that, and those who are apart from Christ will suffer that spiritually primarily, but there will be physical implications for that, right? Think about like, um, I've got this weird case of like tennis elbow. Have you ever had tennis elbow, Jesse? I think so. I'm not even entirely it's sure It's like that is, this weird thing pain. where like the muscle in your forearm, like it, it spasms and it's like you can't grip stuff. It's this weird like random degradation of your body that isn't really, I mean, it's kind of tied to like repetitive motion, but it's just it's just your muscle does just stops cooperating. It's like that for all eternity. That's like what happens when God stops sustaining your body in the truest sense of the term. Like your body starts to rebel against you. This is the second death is the the consequences of and the judicial punishment of God utterly separating you from all of his kind provisions to sustain you. 
that's what the second death is. That that's what I wanted to really like hammer home on this. It's not so much about like like demons dressed in red suits stabbing you with pitchforks. Like that's not what right. we're talking about. We're talking about this utter separation from God's gracious presence that we can't even conceptualize. Even those who hate God have not experienced that yet, but they will. Right. And that's what's so terrifying about this. Yeah, and there's sometimes this sense where people tend to conflate this first and conflate the first and second death. I think as you're bringing it up, that I'm reminded of how important it is to put a crowbar between those two bad boys, so to speak. Yeah. You know, the first death is that physical death. That is actually the death that Jesus said summoned Smyrna in the letter that he's writing to them, that they would suffer because of their faith in him. And the point of his promise then, that again, that those who are in him would be freed in this, from the second death is that no matter how much you may endure physically in the present, you will never suffer spiritually in the future. That's the promise. And that is like the greater punishment that is coming. That is the punishment that we all actually deserve. It's like to go back to what you're saying, I think about Adam and Eve, it's as if like you're being given the fruit of the tree of life, either in the best of all ways or the worst of all ways, the best of all situations or the worst of all situations. And so therefore be faithful if you should be called to die now, because you will never die then. But there are those who will die then yeah. over and over again, so to speak. There would be that incomplete separation. And that's the thing that's really hard to wrap your mind around because for the agnostic, for the atheist, for the person that's just antagonistic toward God, toward religion, toward Jesus, like there's certainly no appreciation for this type of thing. And even for us who love Jesus and uh, come before the Father with as much gratitude and contrition as we can possibly muster in this life by the power of the Holy Spirit, even for us, like you said already, it's so hard to try to understand what this actually means. But the bottom line is it is true. All of this is true. Yeah. So it's terrifying in one way, but I think like it, it's important and appropriate for us to think about this from also that gospel perspective as well. That's presented to us, and John is writing to his audience, as if this is the best news of all things. It is the greatest promise. It's ironic to me that so much of what's presented about hell in the scriptures is from the standpoint of that God has made a way that going back to our series, that God is, or Jesus is both just and justifier. And that justification happens in him actually paying this legitimate penalty. And I think it gives us then some appreciation for at least like the magnitude, at least some sense of size and scope of what that punishment was, because it was this type of eternal spiritual condemnation yeah. type of spiritual destruction this kind of thing, like in our world, like we have some sense of pain that is not physical in nature, but has like physical entailments. So we think about grief or depression, yeah. uh, addiction, you know, like all of these things. And this is like, what could we say? Uh, infinity times worse than that. Yeah. And yet we just can't even conceive of it, but it is real in the same way that depression and anxiety and grief can cause us to react physically. But I think for the person going through great grief, they would say to you, it's not the physical stuff that I dread so much as it is the grief itself. And they're both horrible, but uh, it's because we are body and soul. So imagine though, that we are people that are fully integrated. Like the, the barriers and the walls between those things are no longer in the same sense that we understand them here, where there's not like some kind of partition or separation. And then to be put in a place where you have, like you said, no protection, no benevolent, benevolent distance from God himself. And everything is being torn apart simultaneously all the time. And you have a perfect, conscious, clear, cogent feeling, understanding of all those things in every moment. Yeah. Like there's just no words. Even all these words I've said are just like so 
inadequate, but it is the kind of thing that should drive us again back to this greater appreciation for who God is and what Jesus has done. This is like exceptional salvation. It is exceptional rescue. It is an exceptional activity to be able to withstand this kind of punishment and to bear up underneath it and to take it on, on behalf of let alone one person, but all of humanity for all of time. Yeah. And I think probably this is a good place for us to, to put a pin in this. So this week's topic may feel very disconnected from next week's topic, which is, of course, actually like the final topic in this this big series we've been working on. But the new heavens and the new earth, right? The final, yeah. the final state and hope of God's elect. And it feels like this is very disconnected, but it's actually not. And the reason is just because I don't, I don't love leaving people in sort of like the pit of the law. I want to always bring the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the final state of the elect is that we dwell with God. So like in, in Revelation 20, which is where we've been camping out and we're going to spend more time on it next week, like Revelation 20 and Revelation 21, those chapter breaks are artificial, right? That's that Those don't right. exist in the original text. Chapter 21 and the great hope of chapter 21 is that we will dwell with God and God will dwell among us as, as our God and we will be his people. So, so those who are apart from Christ, they're apart from Christ, like apart from Christ. Those who are with Christ, those who are united to Christ, we are united to Christ. And that's right that's the eternal state of, of God's elect. So we'll, we'll unpack that as much as you can unpack it on this side of eternity. We'll unpack that a little bit next week. But it, it's all connected. It's all integrated, right? The, 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 the negative fate of the reprobate is that they're separated from Christ because— and in conjunction with the fact that the positive fate of the elect is that we're united to and have eternity with Jesus Christ. So, so that's where we're going next week. We're not going to hide any of that from you. There's no like, no like tricky trailer here that's going to make you think that, uh, that we're talking about one thing and it's another thing. We're just going to be talking about what, what the Bible teaches about what the end state of man is. So I'm, right. I'm excited. I'm a little bit like, uh, I don't know, like a little bit melancholy about the fact that we're finishing up this big series. I don't actually know what we're talking about next, but this has been such a like, I mean, we're going on over a hundred episodes of a continue, more or less continuous systematic theology series. So we're talking about multiple years here that we're wrapping up next week. So I, I want to say thank you to people who have, have been here, either from the start of the podcast. I know there are listeners who have been here since episode one. And that's just insanely humbling to me that people have have committed to this podcast, to listen to this podcast, to spend an hour of their week, or sometimes less if they're listening at a higher speed, but to spend time each week listening to what we have to say. It's just so humbling. And especially, you know, over the last the last two years now, we've been working through this systematic theology series here. It's been such a growth opportunity for me to really sit down and think through all of the implications of what our theology is. Our, the, the moral implications with the Ten Commandments series, kind of the, the ethical implications, which includes our the prayer series, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. It's just been really great. So thank you to everybody who has taken time to listen, and especially thank you to the people who've taken time to support the show through Patreon. We... Um, we talk about it often. We're super, super grateful for the people who have given of their of their treasure to do that. 
Um, there are some overhead expenses and, and knowing that there's a group of people who have committed to making sure that those overhead expenses are covered so that we don't have to worry about if a mic breaks down or if we need to change subscribing or something like that. So if you're interested in being a part of the group that makes sure that this show continues to go on the way it has, that things sound great, that the files are accessible, that we have all the equipment we need, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, sorry. I do this every single week to patreon.com <laughs> slash reform brotherhood. Jesse and I have committed to the fact, I mean, we joke about like sponsors on the show, like YNAB and purple mattress and Harry's razors. Like we could get those sponsors. We could do those ad spots and generate some revenue. It wouldn't be hard for us to do, but yeah. we've committed to not doing that. And the only reason we can commit to not wasting your time with the same the same advertisements for the same products you're hearing on almost every other podcast that you listen to is because there are people that support the show. So if you want to continue to make the show possible without all of that garbage, then check out patreon.com slash reform brotherhood and consider, consider chipping in if you'd like. Reminded again of like what's a totally like hypocritical advertisement it would be to bring Harry's on as a sponsor <laughs> because like I do. So I do have a Harry's razor, but Given my beard situation, I can't remember the last time I changed the blade yeah. in my hair razor because I'm guessing you and I are probably not shaving as much as the average Harry subscriber. It's true. Although we do have, we do both have purple mattresses, and I believe we do have purple. Mattresses. We are both fans of our purple <laughs> mattress, but I mean, I think like we've committed to only only promoting Christ-centered products that actually are related to theology. So like you might hear promotion for Logos, you might hear promotion for like we did the NIV study. Oh, of course, study you should hear it. But the primary way that this show is funded is through people who out of their own generosity, they're not getting anything that anyone else is not getting, right? There's no special episodes. There's no special swag. We do give out, like we do sometimes send out like a, a special gift for Patreon people, but that's not why people are joining. They're not joining to get the gear. They're not joining because they get special episodes. They're not joining because they get ad free episodes or anything like that. They're becoming Patreon subscribers, Patreon supporters because they believe in what we're doing and because they want to help the show take place. So if that's something that you're interested in, again, you can go to patreon.com slash reform brotherhood um, and you can continue contribute whatever it is that you feel is uh, within your budget and would be helpful. And we appreciate all of those donations, no matter how big or small they are. Listen, Christian, if you're looking for something that will help you get a good night's sleep, I give you something better than a purple mattress. And it's this, that for the one who conquers, Jesus said, you will not be hurt by the second death, that he has swallowed up the second death. That is a much better pillow to lay your head on or your body on than a purple mattress when you go to sleep tonight. So we don't need any of that stuff. We have lovely listeners who join us in that mission, and we're so glad that you've hung out. And yeah, it's going to be, do you remember the days when we had like week-to-week topics? I know. Do you remember those days? Yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't even remember. I remember <laughs> there was times where we would log in and we'd be like, what are we going to talk about tonight? And we'd be like, I don't know. I remember there were episodes where I would be like, generate a random number between 1 and 107, <laughs> and we would just talk about whatever catechism question that was. So I don't even remember how to pick topics anymore. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, this might be a good reminder because we've got at least a week. 
here's here's a good way right now. Hit us up at info at reformbrotherhood.com and throw a little suggestion out there. Yeah. Maybe it does it could be a series, it could be a topic. And it, of course, it doesn't have to be the kind of thing where it's like Tony and I are not experts at all these things. It could just be like, listen, it'd be cool if we had a conversation like this, or pick the thing that here's your excuse to pick something that you've always wanted to hear people talk about or to challenge people. It could be, you know, who was Cain afraid of? Yeah. You know, I don't know. It could be anything, right? So but now we're getting back to that place where I don't think we're going to be want for topics per se, but they're going to be a little bit more popcorn for a while. And that might be a good break for everybody. We've been at it for quite some time. And, you know, this summer, how many episodes did we do in the Lord's Prayer? Was it like 15? Yeah, we did a lot. There was a lot of episodes on prayer. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was great, but we we were getting into this. We had this kind of like grand arc that we were following. And now it's going to be for a little bit like a period of time, like probably more chill with respect to week to week. So. As you're preparing yourself to tune in, you might find that uh, we're forsaking, I suppose, the series for a little bit in favor of something that's a little bit more popcorn, not popcorn theology, just popcorn-ish. Popcorn theology is a podcast that still exists, I think. I think it does too. That's why I didn't want to confuse people between those Please two. Don't I'm not necessarily us. not recommending popcorn theology. I'm just saying. What I am recommending is, again, popcorn and uh, coconut oil. But <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> I, I know you were. We So at some point, like, here's another thing we should task our listeners to do is like, people have sent us, and sometimes I find these things on the internet. I think you and I have talked about this. Uh, our listeners, they listen to us, at least for myself. I When you talk and you have conversation with people regularly, you don't realize the things that you say that are like unique to you or become like these little like cliches and quirks that you say. So I love it when people point them out about me, like here's the thing that you always say, or then they take that and they turn it into like some kind of messaging or a t-shirt or, and that's happened a couple of times, like salvation is like cake and <laughs> you know, all these other things that we've said over time. I think we got to bring that back as we celebrate the conclusion of what is surely in all in Christendom, the definitive narrative and series on theology yeah that we should have some kind of celebration of one of the things that Tony and I say, we were just like, yep, I knew you guys were going to say that because <laughs> I've listened to you talk for almost 400 hours. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, Jesse, for most of our episodes, not all of them, because it took us a little while to settle on this, that's true. but for most of our episodes, people do know that we're going to say honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>